Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I often have on academics to put some sort of scholarly lens on a particular chapter. And then other times I just have on super fans that love the book series. Sometimes those super fans are related to me. This week, I have both. I welcome back my sister Tara, and I include an excerpt of my conversation with Philip Haberkern, who's professor of history at Boston University. And I'll note that both Tara and Phil note a bit of modern American influence on Martin's world. I thought that was interesting. Okay, before we get to Arya, one of my favorite topics, Tara has a little plant shop that is called Seed and Sow in Sebastopol, California. So if you happen to live in the Bay Area, pop in, say hi to Tara, buy a plant or two. And my oldest sister, Lisa, has a vegan restaurant in Sebastopol. She also has one in Santa Rosa, California. So if that interests you at all and you're in the area, pop into Cozy Plum. And that restaurant gets a lot of accolades in the local news. So even if you're not a vegan, check out Cozy Plum and then Tara's plant shop, Seed and Sow. All right, without further ado, here is my sister, Tara Jenkins. So my question, how does revenge serve Arya, and how does it harm her? Oh, man, what a great question. I mean, how does it harm her is... I don't know how it harms her. I know it harms me. <laughs> right. Like, like we're traumatized yeah. secondhand. Yeah. Uh I think her revenge is darkening her heart. And I don't know if you really recover from that. I th- I think that there's something about the idea of this darkening that robs her of her childhood, that robs her of her best self. And maybe her, maybe like legitimately healthy relationships, but that's all down the road. And that's all kind of my projection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, the way that it helps her. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear that. Uh, the way that it helps her is that it allows her to, it gives her a project mm-hmm. um, to focus on while she d- has no hope. Because if you feel totally hopeless, Revenge, at least, has the prospect of a future, mm-hmm. right? You're going to live long enough to get back at the person. Yeah, so, it's like a goal. It's, a, it's, yeah. like the, it's like a dark cousin of hope or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a way for her to try to control her own narrative when everything feels chaotic. Mm-hmm. 
but do so in a way that is not helpless. Like revenge might sort of give the illusion that you are in control. She needs to cling to some kind of illusion like that. So now that's real. I think that that's absolutely the case in the Arya that we've met so far. And then the the way that it harms her is just sort of my own projection. And yeah. I would imagine that it will come into her story at some point. I'm kind of wondering if Martin flirts with taking a human character that we can totally relate to mm. and then twists and turns and, on, and the journey they take kind of creates an other hmm. version of them. Like they, she turns into an other almost like she's, she gets pretty disjointed from her humanity. She gets, you mean like other, like North of the wall, white Walker, other like other as in, um, a little, like not quite human. Oh, okay. Um, Bran is the same, you know, he's human and he's a little boy and he loves climbing and he's like so curious and he has a future that he wants. And then slowly, like, he becomes Bran the Broken. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's in the book, but anyway. Yeah, no, he, he names he, himself, in the book, he names himself Bran the Broken. Okay. And then he slowly becomes more of, like, a green seer, and he becomes a little more other. Like, he's not quite right. fully human. Right, right, right. And I just, Meaning that he's sort of alienating himself from humanity or something like that. Right. Like, he's not... He's not who he was at the beginning of the journey. He's on a journey and it it's almost like a frog getting boiled, you know, slowly. (laughs) It's like at some point you take the person at the end in the beginning and they don't resemble each other very much. Yeah. So Arya's seemingly, I mean, she's all, I mean, from one view, she's kind of becoming a superhero, right? She's sort of, Mm -hmm. sort of transforming herself into this magical assassin. So do you remember the part in the battle where some man makes it over the wall and then they pull off his helmet or his helm or whatever. And they just see he's like an old man. And she said, and it says while she's killing him, she's feeling sorry. for him. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So like in the moment that she's ending his life, she's also feeling sorry for him. And so I think that shows a tension right there. I don't think, you know, a few books later, like she has that humanity in that moment where she's actually killing someone and still feeling sorry for them and seeing them as the human that they are. She's more of a more mechanical, like this needs to happen or, or they're on my list. Yeah. And the, and around that time that she feels sorry for that old guy, she's also, Showing at least little hints of compassion to Weasel, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is still a little bit of that to her, which I think kind of falls away. Yeah, with Weasel, I mean, she obviously, she's so triggered by her, like her crying, her constant crying. She wants to get away from her. And then Weasel finds her before the battle. She like basically yells at her and pushes her away. But she needs to save Weasel mm-hmm. at the end. Like she... There's all this fire. She's in the middle of like this horrible battle and she makes sure that she saves her, even if she has to drag her. So I I think at this point, she's still at a crossroads. And I think Hall is definitely like the low and and kind of where after this, she really does head more towards that Mm -hmm. assassin personality. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Arya 
chooses the name Weasel. Oh, I have a whole idea about that. Oh, you do? Okay. I mean, just to let people know, like, her little subterfuges run its course. People know that she's a girl now, so she can't mm-hmm. use the name Ari anymore. Mm-hmm. And they ask her what her name is, and immediately, I guess she's on the spot or whatever, but immediately mm-hmm. she says, they call me Weasel. And or Lomi, he, I think she says Lomi calls me Yeah, Weasel. that's right. Weasel. That's right. Yeah. What's your theory? Okay, so I reread all the Aria chapters a few times, kind of prepping for this, and I find this really big. She's torn between these two identities. I think she's torn between a warrior child hmm. and a traumatized child. Yeah. And so, and she goes back and forth, and she's at tension with it a lot. And I actually had the idea answering your question is that when I was reading about her in the battle and how Weasel like held onto her, her leg and she tells her to like, get away. What are you doing here? Run and hide. You stupid. Yeah. Um, And then she pushes her away. I just had this idea that maybe Weasel's kind of like, like her struggling with her child self. Yeah. And and her humanity and this traumatized little girl who's gone through all of this stuff. And it's like this tension between her being a warrior, like she's literally about to go into battle. And she's also a little girl, you know, who has all this trauma experience. And and Weasel's just the traumatized little girl side of it. And so I think she's right before she goes into battle, she's pushing away that traumatized little girl and going into warrior zone. I mean, you see the tension between both. Um, Sometimes she's all she wants is to go home. She wants her family. She says, maybe I'm not like a a wolf. Maybe I'm just a little girl after all. Um, And yeah, what she says is she says, I'm not a water dancer because Syria would never have been pushed around like this. And right. And then like what I wrote down was that the name speaks to Arya's fear and helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not, you know, she's not a like you said. She's she's not anything but fearful and helpless at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, early, in an earlier chapter, it was it was page one forty four. She says she feels like a little girl after all. So I, there's moments when. And then, you know, she also talks about like, okay, dire wolves don't cry. And then another part, she says she's scared of wolves. Yeah. So I just, there's such a tension between like trying to put on this like brave warrior thing. She's, she has certain like um, mantras. She said to herself, like fear cuts deeper than swords, quiet as a shadow, Yeah, yeah. calm as still as water, like all these things that she learned in becoming a swords person yeah and then she also has this traumatized kid who's like seeing murder and death almost every day and a whole lot of fear surrounding all of that anyway i think martin might have used weasel to kind of embody her her fear and her traumatized kid outside of her body here's what i like about this i like that there's a certain duality in her and i think that there's a certain duality with anyone who is sort of at a transitional stage of childhood 
Because you're either trying on adulthood or you're kind of, I I shouldn't say relapse, but your default position is childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And here she is sort of in a, I mean, she's, she's transitioning through all kinds of phases of her life right now. And uh, right now she's pretty helpless. And so this makes fear a massive part of her life at this stage. Mm When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I I also noticed uh, Martin also talks about her chewing her lip a lot. Mm -hmm. And kind of a a little tell, but I mean, for me, I would think that has to do with anxiety and worry. And and she's hyper aware of like her surroundings all the time, like who has what weapon, um, who who could be helpful, who I don't think she trusts many people at all. But like one guard will give her bread Mm -hmm. and the other one will like give her the back of his hand yeah i think she's more in a survival brain i don't think it's necessarily like normal uh parts of childhood that she's going through it's you know it's i think it's more akin to like kids that grow up in like war-torn countries than like anything our kids have ever experienced yeah how do i how do i eat how do i not die today very primary needs right yeah I'm going to read uh, my little synopsis here. Arya is imprisoned near the God's Eye. Gregor Clegane and his men interrogate and torture the villagers perpetually. Murder is now a part of her daily life. On the march to Harrenhal, Arya's secret is revealed to Hot Pie when she pees by the side of the road. Arya enumerates the names she hates with a list. And repeats it each night. Once arriving at Heron Hall, she is assigned to Wheeze, who is the under-steward of the Wailing Tower. So, Tara Jenkins, what do you want to talk about? Um, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but I observed a lot of this dual nature of hers, or parts of her. Mm-hmm. One, she's really attempting to step into being a good fighter and a brave person, and do you remember when she like climbed a tree silently above Lomi and yeah. she like pretend like she envisioned herself pouncing on him <laughs> and then, yeah. and then realized like maybe she shouldn't cause she like might get like disciplined again. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, things like that. Like she's, she's really into this persona of who she could be. Mm. And I don't know if she ever talks about being a knight, but she wants to be a great fighter. Yeah. And then her humanity like comes knocking and it's like, this is really scary. Um, I think it's the previous chapter where she has to see all the like men that were lynched. Um, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I, it's where her and Gendry oh, are going right. to go. That's right. And like 
go into a village and see what there is there and then he gets taken yeah and then she has to walk by all these corpses right and um she basically says like that she's like a stone and uh, she looked at the men that were dead and told herself hard as stone and so i mean i think these mantras are trying to transform her human reactions mm-hmm. into being neutral and not being um yeah she's trying to calm herself yeah you see all these horrific images like right in front of you and then she's gonna tell herself nope your heart is stone and i think we're watching i mean we kind of know what she turns into right like Mm -hmm. um an assassin but i think this is like the fork in the road where she's like where where am i gonna go am i gonna go to survival and being harder and killing people when I need to, to survive? Or am I just like shocked and traumatized and I just want to go home mm-hmm. and where's my family? And she talks about being sad, about like crying in her sleep because she wants, you know, she's thinking about her dad and um, being sad about losing her wolf. Like there's just moments where like it kind of catches up with mm-hmm. her. And then she goes back into her like, nope, we're going to, we're going to be strong and we're not going to be afraid. And, you know, I think it probably serves her well because it helps her survive. Yeah, but not in this chapter. This chapter is is about no. her fear. It's it's about, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's about loss. You know, she doesn't have right. needle. She, she yes. kind of has that recognition. She's like, maybe it's a good thing they took needle because I might have yeah, tried to right. fight and I, I, I would have been dead by now if I tried to fight. Yeah. So there there's part of her that's like there's a little bit of maturity there. Mm-hmm. Sort of knowing like maybe I had some false bravado before. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I thought I was a better sword than I really was. Mm-hmm. This is a dark chapter. Um Yeah. I all right, so this one was tough to assign because I I've got this friend that I talk to about Game of Thrones every now and again, and he's kind of decided this is not the the book series for him. Like he would r- rather like stick to Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he said is that it's just this is such a dark book series. He just mm-hmm. he just doesn't want to live in the darkness. And I kind of push yeah. back every now and again. I'm like, eh, well, you know, the darkness serves its purpose. But that, I don't think that that's where the story, I don't think the story is entirely dark. But I get to a chapter like this and I think, geez, who am I, <laughs> I going to ask? <laughs> what am I? Who am I going to yeah. ask to live through this darkness with? And I thought, I need yeah. someone who, who just loves Arya and wants to talk about an Arya chapter. Um, yeah. So anyway... I do love her, and I do. I it was interesting looking at the full picture of her so far, you know, because this is just such a low for her. Um, like if you just looked at this chapter as like just a little, you know, just pinpoint this mm-hmm, chapter, mm-hmm. it's not at all what we think of Arya as being. You know, she's quiet. Yeah. She keeps her tongue majority of the time. Um, you know, she did. She doesn't speak out of turn. Um, she's, yeah, and she has a lot of self-doubt at this point, mm-hmm. too. Um, I, every, every now and again, I get a guest that says something like, 
Arya is not realistic to me because she doesn't read like a child. You know, Martin wants us to believe that she's nine years old, but in reality, you know, she she talks and thinks and acts like an adult. But this chapter reminds us that her default position is very childlike. And she's, like you said, she's sort of learning to survive and... So she kind of has to grow up, and so she has to sort of put on bravery from time to time. But who did she say she was? Was like a two-year-old traumatized yeah, little girl. Yeah, that's right. That's that's the name she gives herself, right? Out of any, any name, you know, she could have given her mom or yeah. who, who knows what. She's like, I need a girl name, and this is the one. And... I think that's how she's feeling right now. Yeah. She's feeling like the scared little girl. Right, right. I. It is super dark with all of the killing. I mean, it's just... And the idea of, like, no one's safe. Like, the mountain will choose anyone. Mm-hmm. It, it's random. Like, he can make a deal and say he won't choose someone, and then he'll choose the next, you know, the next day. And um, nothing makes you safe. I wrote down... And that's like... Yeah, I wrote <laughs> down the phrase, the banality of evil. Yeah. For this chapter, because... One of the things she realizes is that the worst torturer among the group, the tickler, Mm -hmm. has nothing about him that would make you think he's that kind of person. Yeah, he's a he looks like an ordinary man. He's quiet. And she said he's like too scary to hate. But is it I think it's smart because like I think. Martin's basically saying, like, it's even scarier when he just looks like the normal guy. Right. He doesn't look like a big monster. So you're like, can get categorize like he's a monster. OK, he's he's a good guy. He looks so ordinary. Right. It's sort of like the more scary thing is like the monster who's hiding. Right. That's, mm-hmm. And so sort of here we have a monster hiding in, you know, the visage of a normal looking guy. Are you taking banality of evil from like Hannah Arendt's? Uh, yeah, I was thinking that. Book? I mean, there yeah. there was cer- certainly there was sort of like these people are being killed for seemingly no reason at all. Um, right. Like even the guy that you know says these all for Joffrey over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. Seemingly, the, these guys will just kill you at random. And right, and the information that they're getting doesn't help at all. Yeah, it just seems like um, psychopaths like having yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, other than sort of fear tactics, like creating a, sort of a system of rumors that Tywin's men are monsters and you should fear them, mm-hmm. this serves no purpose at all. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so much so that you know the people are thinking, oh, it's, it'll be different when we're at Harrenhal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is a little bit different at Harrenhal, but uh, it's interesting to me that the mythology of Harrenhal is that it's cursed, right? Mm-hmm. But given what Arya's been through, like how much worse could it be? Right. How can things get any worse than than what she's living through? Yeah, and Hot Pie didn't want to go in because he said there's ghosts in there. <laughs> right. And then he was given the option, well, you can be a ghost or you can go like in there and be with the ghosts. <laughs> right. You know, like I had a feeling of like, okay, good. You're once they're there. And even though she gets like hit for back talking mm. or whatever, at least she gets funneled into like the safety of like 
not like being under the radar a little bit. Right. Like, okay, you're just going to be in the kitchen. You have a function. You're not just on the road and like they could choose you to kill for no reason. So I do think, I mean, and there's probably a lot more numbers there. It sounds like, so you're not as targeted. So there's a few different theories about Heron Hall. And one of them that sort of is part of the mythology that's quoted in this chapter. It's one of old Nan's stories. It's that black Heron or Heron, the black or whatever his name was, he decided to, I guess, use blood magic to build the castle. And so it's like, I, there's I a... thought it said he, he mixed blood yeah, into the mortar. That's right. I was like, yeah. Yeah. So you kind of get the sense that like, there's some kind of curse that goes along with whatever he was doing with the blood. Mm-hmm. Another theory is that it's right on the god's eye, and it's very possible that they cut down weirwood trees to mm-hmm. build the you know to build like the beams of the castle, okay. and then of course that would you know maybe you angered the old gods by doing that kind of thing, and then of course mm-hmm. the third theory is that it's not cursed at all. You know, it's just it's just superstition. And I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of open to any of these options because in Martin's world, the superstitions are often true, right? Yeah. But uh, and for whatever reason, uh, people, no one seems to occupy Heron Hall for very long. And mm-hmm. Arya won't be there for very long. But she sort of, she will encounter a little bit of dark magic there i'm not i'm not sure how to connect the jack and hagar plot to the heron hall setting Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe it's just a literary kind of thing yeah i mean i I, it seemed like there was some magic involved right because he's basically granting her wishes right he's (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um there yeah there there's their wishes, but that involve it all. Everything, everything about this place screams death, right? Yeah. Uh, everything about her experience there, uh, you know, she's gonna sort of meet a death genie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she's she's gonna have a few people killed. Yeah, and and of course she's become very acquainted with death, and this puts her on the path to the, the, basically a death religion. Well, I mean the transitional moment I think of Heron Hall is this is where Arya starts to say the names. Um, says Arya watched and listened and polished her hates in the way that Gendry had once polished his horned helm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love the way he said that. Um, polished her hates. Like, you know, when you think of something over and over again, it's like you create neural pathways yeah. and you end up you know, it's hard not to think that way. You know, it's a well-worn path in your brain. And this is where she starts it. And she says it and she says it. The revenge part of it gets really solidified here. Yeah, the other thing about that a little bit further on down that page, it's that it sort of functions as a prayer for her. Mm-hmm. And so right. this is starting to prepare her, sort of set her on a trajectory for the God of Death. Now, in the book's, the faceless god is not called the god of death. I think that's a show only thing. But it is kind of a death religion. You know, they're they're sort mm-hmm. of like they're priests slash assassins. 
and death is a gift and all that business, right? So it's almost like she's constructing, like, neural pathways would be one way to think about it. Another way to think about it would be sort of like she's setting herself almost to a spiritual orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so we get the first official list. All right, so here's the list. Uh, she says Dunson, Polliver, Chiswick, Raph the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound. Sir Armory, Sir Ellen, Sir Murrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. And, uh, you know, the first, what, first five of those are people that she's just met in the last little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such a low for her. And like I said, I really feel like there's a fork in the road. What what is her identity Mm going to be? And it really swings her to like, I don't ever want to feel like this again. I never want to be this vulnerable again. I don't want to be this afraid again. Notable introductions in this chapter. Uh, Hall and its gnarled towers. Polliver, who we've met before, but I think he gets his name in this chapter. Raph the Sweetling, again, I think his first named in this chapter. The Tickler, Shitmouth. <laughs> Bummer of a nickname. Chiswick, Dunson, Wheeze, and this is the introduction to Arya's list. Uh, we meet yeah. Goodwife Amabel and Goodwife Hara. I thought those were interesting titles. Amabel, like he's taking Annabelle. And right, he... yeah, but they're called Goodwife, Goodwife oh, Amabel, and right. Goodwife Hara. I don't. Maybe this is yeah. sort of like a tradition that is specific to the God's Eye area. I, I, it, it. I don't know what to make of this. I think. Didn't the um um who who was the group that like during the like Salem witch trials? Um, oh, I don't know. What's it's a P word. <laughs> uh, the not the pilgrims, the um, the Puritans. The Puritans, yeah. I don't know. I thought that there is some sort of like title that you say before. A woman's name that was similar to that. Oh, um, so you think that this is... Um... It's like, almost like, you know, like, what do you say in German when you're talking to a woman? Um, Fraulein? Like it's, it, Fraulein, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like a missus, but I think that I remember... I think woman is Frau. Had, I think Fraulein is uh, like diminutive or something. Younger. Okay. Um, anyway, it kind of reminds me of... You, okay, so I looked up good wife... Good wife and goody were used in England, Scotland, and colonial America. In 18th century, they had become archaic outside of Scotland. Yeah, no, no, no. This I think that this is sort of another way to antiquate the text. Um, uh, and it does connect to the Puritans. So you're totally right. Right. I think it might have been in the Crucible, like when I read the Crucible or something. Right. Might have, they might have said goody someone or whatever, and um. So, yeah, it, it might be a reference back to that. So that's interesting. So that's uh, maybe another hint that the place is cursed, an oppressive approach to witchcraft or something. Yeah, it's interesting the way he talks about the castle, that it looks like a gnarled, like a gnarled man's old hand that's trying to grope the clouds. <laughs> so that's interesting to me because... In a previous chapter during the battle, 
there was a guy who's trying to climb up over the wall and she hacks at his fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like he's grasping oh. upward. She sort of focuses on the hair and the details of his fingers. And now she's mm-hmm. seeing the fingers sort of gripping toward the sky. So maybe yeah. that's her a little nod to her guilt or something over the people she killed in that battle. Yeah. Um, notable departures. The nameless pretty girl uh, who was imprisoned with her, mm-hmm. who has a tragic story and a tragic end, yeah. uh, uh, beheaded at the end. Um, and the older fellow who's the, who they call Alfred Joffrey because he's trying to kiss ass or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that his son. Yeah, his son is in the, the gold cloaks. You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, show differences. I noted that, and I, I could probably use this show difference for the next two or three Arya chapters, but uh, no Tywin. Tywin seems mm-hmm. to be in and around Hall, but he and Arya never meet in the books. Okay. So th- there is that sort of, she kind of serves as his cupbearer for a, a little while, which I get yeah, in the show. And I loved those, mm-hmm. th- that that bit of the show. That was really um, cool and seeing them interact. I kind of like the idea of Arya kind of like observing Tywin and learning statecrafts as a mouse in the corner or something like that. Go. Where are you from? Maidenpool, my lord. And who are the lords of Maidenpool? Remind me. House Mouton, my lord. And what is their sigil? A red salmon. I think a maiden pool girl would remember that. You're a northerner, aren't you? Good. And one more time, where are you from? Barrington, my lord. House Dustin. Two crossed lyaxes beneath a black crown. And what do they say of Rob Stark in the north? They call him the young wolf. And? They say he rides into battle on the back of a giant direwolf. They say he can turn into a wolf himself when he wants. They say he can't be killed. Do you believe them? No, my lord. Anyone can be killed. Fetch that water. And it sort of allows you to see Tywin from her perspective. Anyway, not not in the books. Not in the books. Was there anything else you wanted to? Uh yeah. Something else that was kind of a side note. Um, you know, Arya talks about missing John, and if she gets to the wall, she's imagining like him messing up her hair, and then yeah. at the same time they would say, I missed you, or something uh-huh. like that. And she alludes to that they would do that a lot. Like they would kind of finish each other's or say the same word at the same right. time. And so it kind of made me start thinking about her and uh, Aria and John. And I, it was the first time I thought about this, but they kind of both took the black in a way, you know? Oh. Um, even though that wasn't really Aria's choice you know she i guess she could have run away from urine and like right said she was still aria but she decided to play along and she's heading 
with all these guys taking the black um, yeah. to the wall. And um, I was just thinking that it's a little parallel too with their experience that I think there's an idea of like men at the wall and there's brotherhood there and you've kind of create your own family out of the men in black. Right. And she, you know, had a really hard time as well, like John, where he didn't have that ideal welcoming <laughs> and um and that you know john ended up connecting a lot more with sam and then aria and gendry kind of create a little bit more of a bond and um she's trusting him more than the others uh -huh. but it does seem like there's a little bit of a parallel between those two they're both outcasts in their own way yeah i wonder when martin decided because he said early on he had kind of envisioned that eventually Arya and John would become husband and wife. Oh, really? Yeah, and I haven't heard that one. Yeah, but that's sort of like cousins. an early, sort of an early view that he had, and then it, I don't know when he kind of let go of that idea. Um, but I could totally see him wanting to parallel these stories if that was the outcome that he was looking for. Yeah. I don't know. I'm glad he didn't go that way. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> that kind of creeped me out. I mean, you know, they're supposed to be like half brother and sister. They're really first cousins. Yeah. But, you know, they're just so similar. Like, they're supposed to look alike. Yeah. They're supposed to be similar. Like, there's there's something sweet to that that relationship. Right. I'm glad he didn't ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> like he's ruined everything else. <laughs> right. And now my discussion with Professor of History... Philip Haberkern. Phil will be joining me for the next Tyrion chapter. So I teach a class on Game of Thrones. And, you know, one of the things that we're often talking about is like, I do not teach it as how historically accurate is Game of Thrones, because I see this as a very skillful, very intentional sort of weaving together kind of different stratigraphic layers from the Middle Ages. And what I'm really struck is, again, so the 15th century is like the great era of Queen's region mm. um, and into the 16th century. So it's not just medieval, it's also early modern, but this is where you have long periods of royal minorities with Queens ruling over, you know, France or the low countries mm. or in England or in Brittany. I mean, like we have a lot of very, very powerful women. So much so that I think we, so historically, I would say, like, I think we underrate how kind of normal it was for women to wield political mm, power. Mm. And again, it's, it's city-states in the Italian Renaissance or Margaret von Schu or Jeanne of Navarre. Like, we have a lot of these powerful women. And so I think what I struggle with, and this is not just particular to this chapter, but it's a larger thing about Cersei's character, is this idea of the unthinkability of a capable a capable woman ruling and especially it, it, that that to me it strikes me as just a little bit off and you tie that into the fact that there's a lot of institutional weakness around the monarchy in the seven kingdoms um there's not a bureaucracy relatively few people seem like they can read mm. there are no institutions of higher learning other than sort of old town so it's a this is where the mishmash of sort of like I'm being pulled into the 15th and 16th century through the dynamics around Cersei, but 
she doesn't have any of the advantages that a ruler would have had at that time period. Mm. And so it, it, it feels a little bit jarring to me. Um, and it's sort of brought out in this chapter to some extent. It's interesting that, I mean, I often will point out to my students that, you know, in, in the first century, there was a queen of Israel, Salome Alexandra, and mm-hmm. she ruled for seven years. And her reign is remembered as sort of this golden age of Israel's autonomy. Mm-hmm. And you know this is two thousand years ago, and my country has never had a female president. I I think that there's this tendency to feel like, well, we're modern and enlightened, and yet I feel like Martin's world is almost conveying a, a sort of a gender dynamic that's a very sort of a modern presidential politic, because as you say, queens in power were not that rare. No, I think I mean I think that's a really interesting point because again there are there are going to be certain limitations or perceptions of weakness that are always going that still I shouldn't say always still dog female political leaders in the contemporary world and you know there's like the idea that even when even when a state does elect a woman as a ruler it's usually an extremely long time after that there's another female ruler right. and so there's always this sort of backlash against it and so I do think there is something profoundly modern and what i appreciate about martin and or in this particular context within the seven kingdoms is the way all of the all of the claimants to the throne are being represented as sort of lacking something essential right right and so for stannis you know nobody likes him Renly's not serious. Joffrey, as you said earlier, is a moral monster. He's unable Rob... to make an ally, and so he can't. Mm-hmm. He can't create an army. But, but of course, Renly's mm-hmm. got all of that. He's he, he's a great politician, but he doesn't have a yeah, but... a legitimate claim. You know. Well, and he's come on. The Knights of Summer. Those are just those, yeah, right. Yeah. They're play. They're playing at war <laughs> instead of practicing Young, war. Unblooded warriors, right? So. Oh my gosh, I, Catelyn, like. Just her internal monologue around that. It makes me laugh every time. Um, you know, and then Rob is uninterested right. to some extent. Um, or he wants justice, but he also just wants to go home. And so it's in that space that we see the imagination that Cersei could rule. And But it's only because of all of these other sort of glaring disqualifications. Right. So, and that's the, that's the piece of it where I'm like, I, again, it, as a historian, that's the that's what jumps off the page. To right. Me. And I get it. This is again a hyper hyper masculine militant world. And yet, you know, we might look at the late the later Middle Ages as, as a similar thing and and we have lots and lots of examples of, you know, Queen's mothers Queen Mothers and other capable women stepping in to reign when it was called upon. Mm. Tara Jenkins. Yes. Is Arya your favorite character? The correct answer is yes. <laughs> uh, is it more like Arya is your favorite character? You want everyone to be the same? <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> um, she's one of my favorites. I don't know. I don't know if she's my favorite favorite. Um, okay. Who else do you but like? It's, it's, you know, Bran was my favorite from the, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, Bran is famously nature boy, right? Mm-hmm. And now you own a plant shop. 
Yeah, I didn't think about that connection. Yeah. But I loved how I just loved how he described him climbing and what that meant to him mm. and um like how curious he was and that his spirit. So yeah, he's the one I connected to pretty fast. Now, um, I don't imagine that a lot of our listeners live in the Bay Area, but if mm-hmm. you know, maybe 100 or so live within driving distance of your plant shop. Mm-hmm. Um What's the name of it? And, you know, where can people yeah. find this place? So it's downtown Sebastopol. I just bought a plant shop last month <laughs> and we've been open for six weeks. It's been going really well. There's been a lot of support and it's called Seed and Sew. Mm-hmm. And I have plants and pots and also a lot of gift ideas and also a crafting section. So macrame, knitting, crocheting, embroidery, felt kits, that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, so it's been a big transition, but pretty cool. Very cool. And my daughter, Nessa, did your logo. She did. Yeah, we, we worked on it for a while and perfected it, and it's really cute. And it's on all my stuff. It's on my windows, my bags, and cards, and all of it. So she's really talented. I cannot wait to see it. Um, I... I guess I'll be home in a few Next weeks. month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next yeah. Month, something like that. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to revisit one of my favorite numerology topics, and that is the number 19 in Gurm's work. I won't rehash all of the conversations that I've had about this on this podcast. I do believe the last conversation I had was with Patrick McCarran, and he suggested that there might be some connection to the symbol of 19 in Irish mythology, which might have to do with cycles and whatnot. One listener wrote in to say that I had come to a similar conclusion on a previous podcast, maybe a year or so ago. And to be honest, I do not remember what I said, but I must have found it interesting at the time. Anyway, since that conversation with Podrick, I got a couple other emails that I thought were worth sharing. And I, I like both of these. They go in different directions. So the first is from Justin. Justin says, considering how many examples there are of Gurm throwing in pop culture references in his work, for example, the giant 1-1 being named after New York Giants legendary QB Phil Simms, who was 1-1, in other words, his jersey number was 11. Justin suggests, in 1985, an electronic music artist named Paul Hardcastle released a song called 19 that was an anti-war piece about the average age of the U.S. combat soldier in Vietnam being 19. In World War II, it had been 26. I am just old enough, I was 13 at the time, to remember what a huge deal that song was at the time. My dad was teaching at Montana State, and I remember doing my homework in the student union hall, and everyone was talking about it wherever you went. Hip-hop was just barely beginning to hit mainstream, and electronic music like this fit right alongside it. The song still holds up surprisingly well. Anyway, it's a wild stab in the dark, but it's the kind of thing I could see Martin doing. Justin, I like this a lot. And it would be another example of George's pacifist sensibilities bleeding through. Uh, The next email I got on this topic is from Aaron Brummett. Aaron is um, an archaeologist that I had on uh, about a year ago. Uh, Aaron writes, Anthony. My honest opinion is that the number 19 coming up, as you discussed, is a coincidence from Martin picking big but not round numbers, but a foreboding ellipsis follows. 
when I heard you bring this up recently in the Clash John 3 discussion, that was the Podrick McCarran podcast, I asked a friend who is way more knowledgeable about sports history than me. He suggested Johnny Unitas. Famously, Johnny Unitas was number 19 for the Baltimore Colts from 1956 to 1972. This works on two levels. Number one, wordplay. Johnny Unitas equals, then he breaks Unitas into three words, John Unite Us, suggesting that John, who is on the wall, will end up uniting the cultures north and south of the wall. I like that a lot. All right. He says, number two, Unitas led Baltimore to win the 1958 NFL championship game against the New York Giants. This game, played at Yankee Stadium, would have been exciting for fans of either team, as it was the first NFL game to be decided in a sudden death over time. Martin would have been 10 years old at the time. Signed, Aaron. Okay. Aaron. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you for digging down to the heart of the matter. I think this might be it. Not to say that other solutions don't also work, but the John Unite Us, I mean, that doesn't that sound exactly like something George would do. And right now, John is against the cultures of the North, 1-1 being Phil Sims on the opposite side, John being number 19, a couple quarterbacks, and then, wink, wink, the sudden death element of this. Now, would George, as a New York Giants fan, have wanted to make one of his chief protagonists honorific of the quarterback on the other side of that championship game? I guess that would be the major criticism of this theory, Aaron. But Johnny Unitas was beloved by almost all football fans during the time. He was sort of like, a transcendent character. He sort of transcended his team. He was sort of nationally beloved. And I will say that as a sports fan myself, there really is no time in your life that you are more susceptible to hero worship than when you're 10 years old. And so greatest game ever played, Yankee Stadium, George is 10 years old, Johnny Unitas being the most prominent hero of the sport. Hmm. Interesting. So I like both theories, and like I say, I'm a usually a both-and kind of guy, so I don't necessarily think that one theory negates the other. It also means that I will continue my quest for more theories that explain the number 19 in the Song of Ice and Fire. And that is all for this week.